Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside Indy Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. Some folks are starting to get a little superstitious when it comes to their new Dead Soxy socks. I had multiple people reach out to me after Notre Dame's victory over Clemson, crediting their dead Soxy socks as good luck. And I think they will be wearing those again on Saturday, just in case that is the truth. They're must-have items and not just because of what's been happening on the football field. Dead Soxy offers a premium product made from bamboo that gives you that luxury feel on your feet. And that patented technology with a no-slip guarantee prevents the socks from rolling down your leg. And if you haven't been paying attention, Dead Soxy recently launched a navy and gold product line that aligns with the allegiances of our Inside Indie Sports podcast listeners. And those are the socks that have been described as good luck by multiple fans. To find the navy and gold options, head to deadsoxy.com, select Team Colorways under the Collections tab on the website, and you'll be able to see the latest products. I like to use the color filter to help me find what I'm looking for too. And if you use the code LUCKY at checkout, that's L-U-C-K-Y, you'll get 25% off your order. We're really excited how closely Dead Soxy has worked with us and reached out to our Inside Indy Sports community, especially on the Insider Lounge message board, where you can even chat with them directly. It's been fun to see our community enjoying the socks as well. Find out what you've been missing at deadsoxy.com and use code LUCKY at checkout for 25% off your order. Notre Dame put together one of its most impressive victories in quite some time on Saturday, the 35-14 victory over Clemson left no doubt about which team deserved to win that night. And it raised the bar of reasonable expectations for this Notre Dame team and its future under head coach Marcus Freeman. But of course, this team is fully capable of a letdown and needs to avoid that the next two Saturdays against Navy and Boston College. But before we get into those matchups, we wanted to catch up with someone who's been keeping a close eye on this team and knows a thing or two about winning big games in Notre Dame. Quarterback Terry Hanratty, a consensus All-American and Heisman Trophy contender, won a national championship with the Irish in 1966. Terry, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's great, great to see you guys after a uh, a great win for the Irish. Yeah, let's start there, Terry. What what was it like for you to to watch Notre Dame's victory over Clemson? Well, I think it put everything together. I think you know I've been uh, a lot of people have told asked me you know what do you think uh, what do you think of Marcus Freeman? Do you think he's in over his head? Do you, you know he's never been a head coach before and on and on and people can make excuses rather than trying to step you know, step forward. But I always tell them, you know, I bring up three names. I said, Chuck Knoll, Bill Cower, and Mike Tomlin. All three guys are defensive coaches. They never had any head coaching experience and they all won Super Bowls. They're all in their mid thirties when they took their jobs. And so I think Marcus is the perfect man for the job. And I think the way you can really tell is that, uh, they, you know, the, they haven't lost any recruits. You would think after stubbing your toe against Marshall and Stanford, that some of these guys might say, "Hey, listen, maybe I'll take another, another trip somewhere else." But no, I mean they've been able to hold everybody in there, and I think that really, like, bodes well for Marcus. Terry, uh, I know that you and Drew Pine are from the same neck of the woods, and you've had a chance to see him develop over the years before he got to Notre Dame. I'm wondering um, when when he was in high school and so forth, what you thought of him as a college prospect, 
And does that match up with the guy that you're seeing now? I think it does. I remember when he was, I think either a sophomore or junior, <clears throat> the high school coach called me over and said, listen, I got a few colleges that are in. They want to see Drew throw the football. Can you come over and work him out? You know, so I put him through maybe about 45-minute workouts. And the whole time I'm watching him throw, I'm saying, boy, this kid is really, really accurate. I mean, the, every, the ball is not just to the receiver. It's where it should be on the receiver's body. And, uh, and you knew right there, and, and, the peop- and, you know, they were new getting into town. And, you know, everybody gravitated towards him. And, uh, you know, I think he re- really won the, the, uh, his team over immediately. And they were, they, they were quite successful. And, uh, you know, I think things were, uh, you know, just up and up for Drew. I think he's done a, a really good job in a tough situation. You know, no, not, not everybody can just step right in there. Yeah, Terry, what, what is the challenge of stepping in to be a starter at, at Notre Dame for the very first time? Well, you have to command the, the huddle. Uh, that's the most important thing. And, it's, you know, it's difficult because uh, Buckner was, was the starter at the beginning of the year. You know, he basically won the job, we'll say. And, uh, you know, him being injured, then Drew stepping in. Now everybody's, uh-oh, now we're playing with the backup. Now we're playing with the backup. You know, but so you have to win everybody's, you know, approval over you. Coaching staff down with your teammates. I mean, everybody has to realize that, uh, you know, you're the man. And I think he's really proven that. I think Drew has done a really good job. And I think he's, he's made some big plays and some big moments. You know, has he made some goofy mistakes that young quarterbacks do? And we all did. Yes. You know, that's, that's just the nature of the beast. Terry, what do you think uh, is ahead of Drew Pine for, let me rephrase that, is the best yet to come for Drew Pine? Do you think that there's a higher level that he can play at yet this year? I really think so. I think uh, I think he has to, you know, may sound strange to people, but you know, not throw the ball to Mayor too much. Hmm. You know, you got to find the guy, especially Southern Cal. I think you know they they could they could they could play very well against Navy and, and BC. You know, both are in, in you know, especially BC in a, in a downward spiral so far this year. But when you play teams like Southern Cal, that's where they're gonna, you know, you need to use all of your weapons. And any good teams, like Southern Cal is, they will be able to semi-cover Mayer. I mean, Mayer is a great receiver, don't get me wrong. But he could make everybody, you know, Drew could make everybody even more valuable, make more of a weapon out of Mayer if he just gets the ball to other people, let them, you know, get involved in the game. I mean, we've shown just the last game is probably the, the best four quarters I've seen in a Notre Dame football team in a long time. And you really have to give it to the offensive line. Everybody wants to talk about the quarterback. Everybody wants to talk about the uh, the uh, running backs. But if you saw some of those holes that were opened up by those offensive linemen, which you know got to the the backs to the second tier, then they can do their damage. So I think that's probably the the, the first time in a long time I've seen Notre Dame put four quarters together. Terry, I'm curious. You mentioned Marcus Freeman earlier. And, and compared him to some pretty pretty uh, good coaches. What what have you thought of, of the way Marcus Freeman has sort of navigated through this first season and, and sort of emerged beyond those early tough losses that that Notre Dame suffered? Well, the, the two the the two earlier losses were you know they were they were horrendous losses. We should have never lost to either team. But but you got to realize you know you have a new head coach, you have a new defensive coordinator. 
you basically have a new offensive coordinator because now Tommy's calling his own plays and not not being what the other guy used had had him run. You had a new offensive line coach in Harry Heastan, which I think is is wonderful, a great addition. But it takes a while to to mesh everything. I mean, you got a lot of new pieces there. Plus, you're dealing with kids who are 18 to 20, 21 years old. They're young kids. They've been ingrained in a certain situation. Now you're going to put them in a different situation. So that takes time to mold things around. And I knew they were going to have some, some, uh, some, uh, you know, stub the toe a few times. And you know, they played great against Ohio State. I think they really showed what they were like. But then, the, then you cannot have a letdown because everybody wants to beat Notre Dame. And Marshall showed it. And Stanford showed it. So, but you just have to get everybody on the right page. And I think right now, I think they're on the right page. And everything starts with the offensive line. That's that's the whole ball game. And it, as much as people try to complicate this sport, it's very easy to do. Terry, I know Connor had some years with Harry. What what was his feedback from playing for Harry, and and what did he get out of that experience? Harry's first time. He when, when, when I, I told Connor, I, I, I'm hearing that they're trying to hire Harry Heastan back. And he was really excited. He said, that's exactly what those guys need. I mean, those guys, you know, Harry Heastan is a lot like Joe Moore. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember Joe Moore. Of you know, course. You, I am. You hated, the coach. you hated the coach when you played him, played with him. But you love him afterwards because you realize he got the best out of your talent. And, 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 uh, you know, I knew the guy that Joe Moore, Dan Radakovich was with us with the Steelers and Dan Radakovich is the guru of offensive line play in the, in the offensive line tree goes to Joe Moore and down the Harry, he stands and, you know, and it branches out from there, but you know, they're all old school and they all want to punch you in the face and run the football. And that's, that's exactly like, you know, both Joe Moore and Bad Rad are, you know, up in heaven watching that football game, and they're both probably high five when they saw what Harry did last 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 weekend. But he's a great addition because he will teach these kids how to block in football, and that's what they need. And if you look at the the likes of McGlinchey and and Q and Zach Martin and Nick Martin, you know, there's a lot of guys in the NFL that are, that are on Harry's watch. So, I mean, that's, that's, that only bodes well for Notre Dame. And, and it's great for the recruits. I mean, he can put these names on the board, and all these recruits know those guys. They're all in the pros. And they want to go to the pros, so they're going to come to play for Harry. Terry, just a quick follow-up on your son, Connor. What's he up to? Did he get into the financial world? Yes, Connor, he, you know, he couldn't play his fifth year because of concussions. and But he got his one-year MBA instead of, uh, uh, instead of that fifth-year football. And now he's working for an investment banking company in New York, doing very well. I mean, make make a lot of money, and they're working so hard he didn't have time to spend it, which Dad likes. <laughs> Terry, you you were at at Notre Dame early in Eric Parsegian's career. I'm curious what what were the traits that made him such a special coach, and how did you sort of pick up on that as a player? Well, I was uh, one of I was Eric's first recruiting class. And I was all set to go to Michigan State. And uh, John Ray, who was the defense coordinator back then, and he recruited Western Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And he said that Eric was going to be in Pittsburgh. And, I'm, you know, my hometown is 30 miles from Pittsburgh. He said, can you get out and have lunch with Eric? 
and I went down and had lunch with him. We sat there for a couple hours, and it was, I was in awe of the man I was with. And I remember telling my mother when I went home, I said, I'm going to Notre Dame. I said, that's the, the guy that I want to spend the next four years with. And he is very intense. He's a great teacher. He's a great educator. He wants you. You know, he had 98% graduation rate in his 10 years at Notre Dame. And, and there one guy who didn't get his degree, came back and got it a couple of years later. So in essence, he had 100% graduation. And Era really cared. And the way you can really tell, you never hear anybody say a bad thing about Era. Mm-hmm. And plus, on the team, from the guy from the consensus All-American down to to the guy who never got in the game. They all, we all loved Era. And you, you don't find that. You always have the kids, that, well, the kids, the coach didn't like me. I got injured, so the coach wouldn't play me. You know, there's some excuse for not playing. And nobody, you won't find anybody do that with Era. Just a, a true, a great human being. I, I still consider him the second greatest male factor in my life, obviously, my father being the first. And you know, I, I miss him. Terry, when was the last time you were able to get back for a game at Notre Dame Stadium? Oh, man, I didn't go back this year. You know, when Connor was playing, I was there, you know, every weekend. Right. And and, and sometimes even longer, I'd stay longer. But uh, I was there for the spring game, but I couldn't stay for the game. I watched, you know, we had, they had a big uh, reunion for the uh, Marcus Freeman invited all the former players back. So I was back there for a couple of days then. And uh I didn't go to a game last year either. You know, a lot, a lot of times, I, you know, I used to have a house in South Bend. I sold that last year. And uh, I would go. I'm not big on crowds. Hmm. I'm not one. I love to sit in the stadium. So I would go to the tailgate, the alumni tailgate, and I'd get my golf cart and go back to my house and watch the game, game there. It's much more comfortable, and I got to see all the game. So uh, I don't miss, miss walking in the stadiums, to be honest with you. And I know that you had a rough go of it with COVID. Um, how bad did it get and how are you feeling now? Well, no, that was uh, interesting because I just got over my second bout with COVID. Really? Yeah, it's been 10 days past my second COVID. I just had it, you know, got it 10 days ago. And it was, I was up at, uh, somehow I caught it up at, I went to the Syracuse Notre Dame game up in Syracuse. A friend of mine had a box up there, so we went up and, Everybody, you know, someone was a super spreader and everybody there got it, but I'm over that. And, uh, but the first one, I mean, this was nothing. This was like having the flu. But the first one was a good one because I had 103.5 temperature. I had 85% oxygen. I had uh, double pneumonia plus COVID. And one of the first to get it. So no one knew how to, what to do for people. So I was in the hospital for five days and, uh, Luckily, you know, they, they put me on hydroxychloroquine, which back then everybody was, you know, bad mouth about that. The one thing is it made me better. And, you know, I have no real after effects. You know, I walk five miles a day now and, uh, you know, I'm in great shape. I'm the same weight I am now when I was a freshman in Notre Dame. So that's good. I wish I could say that. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're glad. I'm glad to hear that the, the second bout didn't treat you too, too badly. So, um, no, that was that was easy. That was just a cold, pretty much. That's good. I, I, you mentioned not necessarily liking to get into crowds, and I can understand that. But I'm curious from watching on television, what did you think of the atmosphere at Notre Dame Stadium? Was that something that you felt like was maybe different and maybe amped to a different level than we've seen in recent years? Oh, I thought it was spectacular. 
you know, that, that especially after the game when all the kids rushed the field, I mean, that was just magic, magical. And, you know, it's a night game. So there's the, the lights are more brilliant and whatnot. And so, no, it was a, it was a really neat happening. And uh, I just hope we can have a lot more of those. Um, Terry, when do you think we'll see the best of Marcus Freeman, meaning, um, you know, maybe not having these growing pains and bumps? Do you think they're behind them? Do you think that's maybe more of a 2023 thing? What do you think in terms of his coaching trajectory? Well, I think I think this season is pretty much over. You know, he has to obviously go out and play that Southern Cal game. Yeah. And I think you're going to see, you know, and a lot of it has to do with communication within your staff too. You don't know whether, you know, we nobody knows the behind the scenes of things. So once the season is over, then if you see any movement, then you know there was some maybe a little disruption in the staff during the season. And, you know, once you pick your pick your staff, you don't always stick with that staff. So you, you like them when you pick them, but maybe it just doesn't mesh with everybody else. So those are the big decisions Marcus will have to make after the season. But I think, you know, he's a smart guy. He's going to learn. And he'll, he's going to learn really quick. And I just, I just wish Era was still around that he could talk to Era because all the coaches used to go over and spend a lot of time with Era because there was no better, no better guy who who really prepared a team to play a team. I mean, we never went into a game where we were, uh-oh, how did that ever happen? Sometimes we didn't execute as well as we should have. You know, that causes the loss. But we were never surprised in any game. And I think Marcus is going to be that way. I think – I think he's just grown this season so much. It's been really cool. I mean, yes, it was a, a tough, the Marshall game and then Stanford game. Those were tough ones to, to handle. But, hey, forget about it. There's no – that history, man, you, you can't go back and replay it. You just got to forge ahead. And I think what you saw last week, they forged ahead quite well. I mean, they, they played – they got everything together. The defensive coordinator got together. What the offensive coordinator, what the line coach was – the special teams have been spectacular. We haven't seen that in years. And so everything is going well. But then again, that that win is history also. So you have to prepare because Navy coming up is a different bird. Mm-hmm. They run that triple option and they can drive you absolutely crazy with it. So they have to be prepared, especially when you play them in the middle to end of your season, when you're used to playing all these passing teams and, the, the, you know, the uh, – the teams that play just, you know, five, five men up and they just block you one-on-one or whatever. And the no, Navy's coming at your legs all day long and they will just really wear you down. So they, they have to be ready for that. It's different. Terry, the transfer portal has brought another layer to roster management and particularly at the quarterback position. I'm curious, what what's your perspective on the challenge of that um, from the coaching perspective and what that would be like as a player when you deal with maybe quarterbacks coming and going in in your position room so so frequently? Well, my, my freshman year, we had four quarterbacks in my freshman class. And all wow. four were the all-state quarterbacks from their state. Right. No one transferred. We had one guy from Indiana, Mike Franger, went from Elkhart. He transferred. He went over and played basketball, but stayed in school, obviously, and just, you know, went from football to basketball and happy. And the rest of us just stayed there and competed. And we were there for the education. You know, that's what scares me about all this is going to the transfer portal, the NIL. And is it eventually, I see it and I, and I hate it. I think it's a nightmare that I'm seeing 
that it's going to prevent these schools from being able to afford a sport. Not Notre Dame, not Alabama, not those schools. They got tons of money. But there's the second half of everybody's conference. Those teams are hurting. The MAC conference would be hurting if they, you know if they can't get some kind of financial support. And that's a great conference. And but I just don't want to see them say, okay, if we're going to have to pay you some money, we're not going to be able to give you the academics. Because that's what you're really there for. And 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 the uh, the numbers when you put them together don't mix up because when when you're in high school. One percent make it to division, you know, to the uh, uh, you know big school football, and less than a half a percent make it from high school to the pros. So that's a big gamble to take, and I don't want these kids to be so many kids to be seen on the street. You you got to go and get your degree. That's the main thing. Okay, Terry. Besides walking five miles, kicking COVID's butt, uh, what else are you up to these days? Well, I don't want to have another bat bot like that with COVID. I won <laughs> one, and I don't want a rematch. But uh, no, this, this, I've been, I've been, uh, I'm retired. I worked on Wall Street for about 35 years. I'm retired, but I'm I'm, in, I'm involved in a in, in a, uh, in a in a venture that uh, takes up a little bit of my time. That where I, the the uh, see, when I did the had the COVID, I realized how how unclean hospitals were and, and how detrimental it was to, to all the support people that were, that, that handle patients in the hospitals. And you know, I teamed up with a, a company from New Hampshire and, you know, have these UV lighting lamp bulbs that kill all pathogens and we're approaching hospitals and schools and nursing homes. And I mean, it's something that is going to be something in the future. I mean, this company is five years old and everybody who knows, those are UV lamps. They know that, that it kills pathogens, but when it'll make a, it'll cleanse a room. For instance, if you're going into a locker room or not a locker room, but an operating room, you can, you can, if you keep the lights on on that, you'll kill all the pathogens in that room. But once someone steps in that room, you have to turn it off because the lamp will burn people. Then you just dirty the room up as you walk in. So it really doesn't do much good. Our lamp, you can leave on 24 seven, and it does not hurt the skin. So it's it, you know, something that, uh, that I'm pretty passionate about. Uh, and, and I thought I was going to be working on my handicap since I retired, but uh, <laughs> I haven't been able to do that. I've been, you know, involved myself too much in this, uh, in these uh, UV lamp, uh, lamps. So it, it's fun though. It, it's something that can help a lot of people. And that's what I'd like to do. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you helping us out by joining our podcast today, Terry. And Best of luck to you moving forward. Okay, guys. Thank you. As a reminder, the Inside Andy Sports podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear or ever storm the field with. And believe me, they have the patented technology with the no-slip guarantee so you can get stepped on and they guarantee that those socks will get still stay up. They're made from bamboo for that premium luxury feel. and if you go to their website, which is deadsoxy.com, you want to check out the Navy and Gold collection. That's going to sync up with your favorite team. You click on the collection tabs, select team colorways from the drop-down menu, and you can see all the cool socks. There's some with shamrocks. There's some with stripes, all different kinds of styles. And, and there's the no-show socks, too. 
the regular kind of dress socks. So check them out. They make great Christmas presents and you probably want to get started on your Christmas shopping soon. If you do use promo code lucky, that's promo code lucky and you'll get 25% off on your order. So that's deadsoxy.com promo code lucky. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from at Charles W. Wolf. Can you think of a Notre Dame game you covered that surprised you this much? I didn't. The, I'm going to mention four that kind of came up top of my head. Uh, one that I didn't cover, but I was in South Bend at the time. I was covering Big Ten games, and that was the Miami-Notre Dame game in 1988. Um, I was surprised Notre Dame beat them. Uh and then 2002 Florida State with Tyrone Willingham's first year when they got off to that 8-0 start, they were such a challenged Notre Dame was offensive team. They won with defense and special teams, and that eventually kind of caved in. But, but uh, Florida State was a, uh, a, a highly ranked team, and they went down into Tallahassee, won that. The other two were... Um, a loss, the USC loss in 2005, the Bush push game, because, you know, all the TV pundits were predicting Notre Dame was going to start maybe 05, 0, and 6. And this USC team was supposed to be invincible. They ended up losing in the national championship game to Texas, but they were super talented. And Notre Dame came in with within an eyelash and a Bush push of, uh, of upsetting them. In fact, the crowd stormed the field thinking the game was over and they all had to go back into the stands. And then the last one would be Oklahoma in 2012. Notre Dame was actually the higher ranked team in that game. I think it was five versus eight, but they were a double digit underdog. And I, I had seen that movie too many times of, you know, Notre Dame getting into that under the big stage and then falling off of it and falling badly and I, I remember turning to Al Lesser and Tyler was there too and saying can you believe this is happening you know a, a 30 to 13 game you know Bob Stoops had lost like four home games against non-conference teams and all his time at Oklahoma maybe it was four home games period but it was just Notre Dame wasn't just it was like the Clemson game I mean they were kicking butt and taking names at the end of the game it wasn't just you know, this fluky kind of upset, it was a domination. And uh, so those would be the four that jumped to mind for me. Yeah. 2012 was the first year that I covered Notre Dame. So that my, my window is much smaller than Eric's, but that, that Oklahoma game certainly would be close. I, I guess, I mean, I was new and maybe naive. And so I, I, 
wasn't necessarily shocked by it. Um, I was certainly impressed by how Notre Dame played. Um, and also, to me, the biggest difference is that we didn't. We never saw that Notre Dame team look as bad as we as we've seen this Notre Dame team be this season. So that's why the outcome was as surprising as it was. So I don't know that I would have say that there was anything in comparison to the surprise that the surprise victory. I guess if you if you do it in reverse, the, it would be the Michigan game in 2019, which the Wolverines won 45 to 14. That was probably the most surprising the other way. Um, but in terms of a positive way, this this was the most surprising outcome that. Not just outcome, but the, sort of the way it happened and the way that Notre Dame was able to do it um, was probably the, the most surprising game that I've covered of a Notre Dame game. Yeah, now that 2012 team, though, had some close calls with some kind of meh teams. and Maybe not a Marshall, but right after they opened the season with Navy, they just barely got past Purdue. And the game that Tommy had to start, Reese in place of Everett Golson, they just barely got past BYU. That wasn't a bad BYU team, but I mean, there were some close calls. I think wasn't the pit triple overtime game in that season. And yeah, that was after the Oklahoma game. Yeah. So, I mean, there were some, there were some close calls, but, but not the losses. All right. Next question we have is from at Mike Devoy one. Any insights on why Lorenzo Styles played so few snaps? Um, and then a couple of questions about Drew Pine. Can you recall any Notre Dame quarterback who has had so many passes tipped at the line? Is this an indication that Pine isn't using his throwing lanes well? Well, let me start with well, let me start with that one. I I cannot remember any Notre Dame quarterback getting their passes tipped like this. And Marcus Freeman addressed this Monday. You know, I mean, it, he's he's listed at five eleven and a half. He's probably 510-ish. Um, and what Marcus says is he has to step up in the lanes and make sure that he's, you know, got a clear path to throwing the ball that he sometimes just sees the receiver and throws it and there's a defensive lineman too close. So he's going to have to maneuver in the pocket a little bit more. I mean, there's been guys his height that have played in college football that have been successful that haven't gotten as many passes batted down as drew so it's doable i mean they're usually more mobile than he is but uh you know that that's the most that i can remember the other part of the question was about lorenzo, lorenzo Styles not yeah. playing as much i mean when i was watching the wide receivers they were doing a lot of blocking and Lindsay and Jaden thomas did a really good job on the times that i was noticing them i didn't watch them on every snap but the times that I did, I was pretty impressed with what they were doing. And yeah. they're probably better blockers than than so. Yeah, I, I agree that they are they are better blockers. And Notre Dame used a lot of 12 personnel. So those were the two receivers that were the pr preferred receivers in the 12 personnel. And then when Notre Dame ran 11 personnel, Tobias Merriweather took some of Styles' snaps. And that was a result of him dropping a, a pass early in the second quarter. He didn't play again after that that drop pass until the middle of the fourth quarter. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, he has had issues with drops and um, there's only so much Notre Dame can sort of put up with when it comes to that. Um, they need him to be better. They need, I mean, if this passing offense is going to be more dynamic, it's going to be involving him in my opinion. Um, but he just hasn't been that. And so um, I, I just sort of see it as sort of chancy stuck. You holding him accountable for, for letting down his quarterback once again. So 
um, that's I'm sure played a role, but obviously the blocking um, matters as well. Um, as for the batted passes, I actually did some some quick research on this, um, and I mean, it, it, and the research backed up what I th- would thought. I I, I couldn't re- think of anyone that had their passes batted down this much. Um, according to PFF, um, 4.4% of Drew Pine's passes this season have been batted down, um, and that's a higher rate than any Notre Dame quarterback going back to 2014. That was as far back as the data goes, but Everett Olson was two, had 2.3% of his passes batted down that season. Um, and he was right about six foot himself. Right. Drew, Drew Pine, or not Drew Pine, Ian Book um, had some batted pass issues, particularly in the 2019 season. He had nine passes batted down, but that was 402 passes. Drew Pine has had eight passes batted down out of 182 passes so far this season. Um, and, and I want, I, I looked into like how does that compare compare nationally to other quarterbacks um and that's the second highest rate um of passes battered down uh in the fbs among guys who have started five games this season um so bowling greens matt mcdonald has a 4.8 percent um passes batted down rate how tall is he doing that's slightly no i did not look that up uh so pines tied for eighth eighth in total with eight batted passes um, and he's thrown fewer passes than everyone that is higher than him. Matt McDonald throws it more frequently, but has had, I think it's 13 batted passes down. So that's contributes to his slightly higher percentage. So it is, it is bad. It's not, it's a, this isn't one of those things that we're just, or Notre Dame fans aren't just like not having perspective on the context beyond Notre Dame. Um, this is, this isn't good. Um, I don't think anyone would, would have thought it was good, but it, it does not compare well to to quarterbacks across the country or quarterbacks in recent Notre Dame memory. And I just looked up Matt McDonald. He has no excuse. He's six foot three. <laughs> so there, so it's not all height related there. There are more things that go into it than, than just height. He must throw it, sling it sidearm or something. <laughs> uh, next question is from Rico Benes at Mike B 95. What was the anomaly freshman Lorenzo styles or sophomore Lorenzo styles? I'm pretty convinced it's sophomore Lorenzo styles. I think, he's going to get back to that form. He was super talented coming out of high school. And, uh, you know, I think the lack of passes, the changing of the quarterbacks, not having chemistry and and things have gotten inside his head, but the guy is super talented. He's really good in space. I think we'll eventually see a very good Lorenzo styles. It may not be yet this year, but I think the 2023 version of him is going to be very good. Yeah, I agree. It's it's the sophomore version that's the anomaly. He's better than this, and he, he just has to get out of this funk. It's 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 not good. It is it is worrisome, but I I don't think that long term it's going to prevent him from getting closer to his potential than what he's playing at right now. Next question is from at CFB Independence. Is Benjamin Morrison the best cornerback since Shane Walton or Vontez Duff? Well, there's I mean those guys played. Um, in the Davy slash Willingham era. Um, so that's about 20 years ago. I would say, right. I, I mean, the hope and the thought is he could turn into something like that, which would be, you know, a consensus. Well, Shane Walton was a consensus all American bond stuff, I think was a third teamer, but I'd say right now the bar is Julian love. I mean, he's 
he's a consensus All-American that I think set um, past breakup records for single season and for career um, and was really, really good. So I would say Julian Love first. If he can clear that hurdle, then we can talk about Shane Walton. And then if he can clear that hurdle, then Todd Light. But those would be the kind of guys that come to mind, I think, that are, you know, in my time covering college sports, which is since 1983, those would be the guys that from Notre Dame that would be the ones that jump out at me. Yeah, Julian Love was was where, like, he... <laughs> He deserves a word in this conversation. Um, and uh, he, he was pumping up Benjamin Morris, and he was tweeting about how, how well he played. Um, Julian was actually at the game uh, on Saturday, so um, that's a good lineage there. He Julian, like Benjamin, was asked to play as a freshman um, and played particularly pretty well on a defense that was really bad in 2016. Um, he had an interception and, and three pass breakups, but he also had uh, – uh, 45 tackles um so he, so he played pretty well you can you might be able to make the argument that um Benjamin Morrison's playing better than uh Julian Love did as a as a freshman I, I looked some PFF data uh 45 percent of the passes thrown at Benjamin Morrison have been caught um compared to Julian Love when his freshman season 61 percent has been caught but obviously there's a a long way to go there in terms of well, Julian had Brian Big Order as his coordinator for the first four games <laughs> right and and uh, not a great defense around him even beyond that so um I, Benjamin Morrison is probably playing in a better um situation than Julian. A better pass rush remember that that pass rush in 2016 they got three sacks from their defensive linemen for the season <laughs> right yeah so there's a there's a difference there but yeah Julian Love is the He's the standard, the best quarterback of in the recent era that that Benjamin Morrison would be chasing. Now, let's not. I get... have a yeah, a camp story about Julian Love. You know, when Patterson, when I mean Morrison came in, <laughs> you got to stop I, doing that. That's the know, third time I, you've done it in the last like three days. <laughs> I know. I, I, I get Morrison and Patterson mixed up. I want, he needs to change his name to make me correct. <laughs> Benjamin Morrison. When Ben came in, I'll just call him Ben. Um, you know, he looked good in practices. I mean, you you noticed Mickey and you noticed Morrison, but um, I remember in the camp that Julian Love was in, I'm like, who's 27? You know, because he was making plays all over the field in training camp. And I'm looking at Julian Love. I thought this guy was supposed to be a three-star. Um, he, I mean, there were, there were guys and. The other guy that did that to me in training camp was Josh Adams because, again, he was a three-star, and I'm like, wow, I didn't think he was supposed to be that good. So um, that's just a little little tidbit. It, just another way for me to mispronounce one of the easiest pronounceable names on the team in Morrison. <laughs> I don't know if that's mispronouncing it. I think you're just mixing it up. So uh, it's not like you're saying uh, Morrison or something like that. <laughs> but, well, remember, who was the guy? Was it Dickerson that I? Yeah, you, you would say like uh, Dickerson. I combined two guys. Yeah. and They're both decommitted, I think. Yeah, there's Matt Dickerson and, uh, I don't know, Clifton Garrett was a guy you messed up. Some, you were I, yeah, you were messing up all kinds of guys' names. And I think Grant Blankenship was well, in the thanks, mix there, too. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> Tyler, keep the scorebook. 
<laughs> if Tyler that... messes up, I just change it and keep it to myself. Tyler will point <laughs> it out to me. Well, I can't have people thinking you're talking about Jared Patterson on the podcast. So we got we got to make sure we we know who we're talking about here. Uh, right. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Ordinarily, it'd be assumed ND will win easily over Navy, just like it was assumed prior to Marshall and Stanford. Any signs from the staff that they know they can't afford to allow players to take another inferior opponent lightly? Fans have to feel like Charlie Brown at this point. Well, I mean, Mark has addressed it after the game Saturday, and they addressed it in practice Sunday night. And then there's only so much you can do with that. I, I, I think they've learned their lesson. I mean, if they've already got stung by it a couple times, you know, I, I do think they overlook Marshall to a certain extent. I'm not sure what happened in the Stanford game. I, I don't know that that was overconfidence or whatever, as much as it was just a really bad offensive game plan and, and bad play at certain positions. The Marshall game, I do think they plan to play a lot of players. The coaching staff did, and maybe they overlooked Marshall a little bit. Um, and again, some of the things Terry Hanratty talked about, you know, uh, of a team meshing and a coaching staff meshing. Uh, but I don't think they're going to overlook Navy. They know Navy's uh, a difficult out. They're a different animal, and you cannot turn the ball over them, and you cannot let them play with a lead. Yeah, I mean, I understand the concern. I, we spent a lot of time asking Marcus Freeman about that on Monday. He, he's certainly well aware. Um can we say with certainty that he's figured out how to prevent it? I, I don't know that we can say that. <laughs> We've been fooled twice already. So I feel if we're fooled the third time, that's on, our, on us. So Notre Dame has to go out there and prove it. I mean, there's not much more to say about it. They have to um, not allow themselves to to slip up and um, take some of the goodwill that they've gotten from, from beating Clemson away. Yeah. I mean, this is a step in their evolution. Now this is their chance to prove it against these two teams, um, Navy and Boston College because they should trounce both of them. Uh, and that may or may not happen. So we'll see, but, you know, you have to go through these rites of passage. So we'll, you know, let's, let's wait and see on it. Maybe you won't feel like Charlie Brown. Maybe you'll feel like Lucy pulling the ball away. Next question is from at summer. John, what should a, what should a coach do to ensure this team stays in a dominating Clemson mindset for versus refer, reverting to a Stanford slash Marshall passive and sluggish type team. Well, Marcus Freeman has been talking about this all year. Don't trust the process, fix the process. And he said, they take the same approach after a loss that they do after a big win in terms of uh, self-scouting, going back through and saying, okay, what can we do better? Let's continue to try to improve. So I like, I like the uh, thinking that he's put in place in terms of whether you've won or lost, you need to kind of tear things apart and make sure you're doing things the right way and and self-examining everything. So I, I like that. I don't know that there's a whole lot beyond that you, you can do. I, I've seen first-year coaches that are struggling, like Marcus was early in the year, and they dig their heels, and this is the way we're going to do it. We're not veering. And, and I think what Marcus has done is he's kept true to his principles and values, but he's willing to change the methods from week to week to make things better. Yeah. And I mean, I think you have to keep reminding them of how it felt to lose to Marshall and how it felt to lose to Stanford and remind them of why that happened. 
Um, and so uh, you just sort of make sure it's clear that we can't, we can't allow this to happen. And we know that it can happen because we've seen it happen already. So um, I think those are just messages that, that Marcus Freeman and the coaching staff has to keep harping on throughout the week to make sure that they don't lapse and sort of get back into maybe a more relaxed mindset than they, than they need to have going into these next two games. Next question is from at coffee, dark roast. Didn't Brian Kelly have an assistant where he only focused on stopping Navy's triple option. Is there a coach that does that currently for Marcus Freeman? Bob Elliott was an assistant coach for Brian Kelly that ended up being an analyst. He had some health issues with um, kidney, his kidney, and he became an analyst and he became a very valuable analyst. And he kind of put together this program of having a scout team imitate uh, the Navy and work on the Navy um, triple option all year long so that when they presented it to the first team defense, they were a well-oiled machine. They could simulate it pretty well, not not at Navy speed, but certainly something that's going to give the team a good look in practice. Uh, so Bob Elliott was instrumental in doing that. And Marcus was pretty good with triple option teams when he was at Cincinnati. They did a really good job with Navy last year, and he's kept some of the things that Brian um, – did in in terms of having the i can't remember what they were called um but the the year-round team they they did some practicing of the triple option both in fall camp and during the bye week so they're not just starting sunday night with navy and trying to um get through that really quickly but bob elliott is the assistant coach's name he's no longer with us yeah and we what Marcus didn't name like a coach that's specifically in charge of that. So I'm not sure if there's one person that's leading that or not, but um, regardless, there is. Sounds that. like Al Golden has taken the reins because Al had faced triple option quite a bit when he was a head coach at Temple and head coach at Miami. All right. Next question is from at Thomas Rogers underscore one is the bad quarterback play going to hurt Michael Mayer in the draft? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, He's actually moving up. I saw Mel Kuyper had his newest um, mock drafts and newest, what do they call it? Top big board. 25. Big board. Big board. And, and Michael Mayer is in the top 10 now. And that and I think in Dame Brugler's uh, projections, Michael Mayer has also improved his status. So, no, he's he's going to be the top tight end taken in the draft and he's you're gonna see it on a Thursday night you're not gonna have to wait around very long for Michael Mayer to get picked yeah and if you're not familiar with draft analysts obviously I would imagine people know Mel Kuyper Jr. works for ESPN but Dane Brugler works for the athletic and is someone that has given us a lot of insight um about the draft over the last few years um but yeah no I mean and it's not really hurting his stats either. He's still leading the FBS. <laughs> it, Setting uh, records. Yeah, he's he's leading FBS tight ends and receiving yards and reception, and he's tied for receiving touchdowns among uh, FBS tight ends. So he's still producing. It's just not – he's just the other people around him aren't producing is what, what the problem is. I, I think the only thing that might have helped hurt Michael early in the year is maybe like midseason All-American teams just because – people tend to pick teams right. that are relevant for 
award winners. And now Notre Dame is relevant. They're back in the top 25. Yeah, even though, I mean, you can make a case either way, like who's better, Michael Mayer, Brock Bowers, like that is that is a decent argument. But Bowers is going to win that sometimes just because of the just how much better Georgia is as a team, even if even if I think there are probably plenty of people that think Michael Mayer is a better player. All right, next and obviously that that won't matter in the draft. Uh, Brock Bowers won't, won't be eligible for the draft because he's a year he's a year younger than than Michael Mayer is. Next question is from LDL Go Irish on the Insider Lounge. JD Bertrand had an incredible game, in my opinion, and I am sure others agree. Can you compare him to other very good Notre Dame players in college, and how he should, and how he will be should he go pro? Is he Drew Tranquil, Drew Drew White, or comparable to someone else? Well. Drew Tranquil didn't play middle linebacker, although um, JD played weak side linebacker last year. Um, I, I would say Drew White is probably the comp there. I, I want to see JD finished out the season because he's playing at a different level now than I've ever seen him play. Um, I, I think I was, I wasn't with the message board crowd at the beginning <laughs> of the year, but I wasn't willing to stand up to him and say, no, you're wrong. Um, that was me, Eric. That was me. That that was you. Well, you were, <laughs> I, I saw some of the deficiencies though. I, I felt like JD um, got isolated in coverage sometimes and that's coach's fault somewhat. I And, and you know, the targeting calls and, and missing so much time. Um, and he wasn't as productive early in the year either. I mean, his stats weren't now. I mean, he made a play and I even pointed out to Tyler in the game, you know, he came from behind, he pursued somebody in the backfield. I don't remember if it was Shipley or somebody else, but he caught them behind the line of scrimmage. It wasn't a, a sack. It was either a jet sweep or a, or Will Shipley was running the ball, but his pursuit was incredible. And his play diagnosis just seems to have amped up and that makes him even quicker to the ball. So I, I, my hat's off to JD Bertrand, but I don't have a good comp other than I think Drew White was super good at play, um, you know, at play diagnosis and, and certainly made the most out of his talent. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly more like Drew White than Drew Tranquil. I think the best comp for him personally is Tavon Coney. I think, I think there are some some similarities there in their game. I I think the perception of them as players from the fan base is different for sure. Like Tavon Coney was more beloved uh, than I think JD Bertrand is, but I'm not sure that their games are that, that much different. I think Tavon wasn't great in coverage either. No Tavon and Tavon may be a a bit more physical, um, but I don't know that Tavon was really that much of a better athlete than JD Bertrand is. I think sometimes um, I think that we might be dealing with some stereotypes there when we talk about JD Bertrand's athleticism, but I think that 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 to me is is the comparison. Someone that was ultra productive. Um, Tavon Coney missed some tackles too. Um, I can understand if people like Tavon Coney better than JD Bertrand, but I don't think the difference is that great. And then Tavon was also someone who struggled to to get footing in the NFL. So I'll be interested to see what what happens with JD Bertrand as a potential NFL player. I like to follow John Michael Bertrand, <laughs> next left-hand pitcher from the baseball team that plays in the Giants organization. Next question is from at Henry Bede. Do you think wide receiver will be Chris Tyree's primary position in 2023? I think that's a great question. I got a lot of variances of that question on my live chat last week. 
when you think about all the running backs that are coming in, if they all end up signing in December, and we're talking about Jeremiah Love, Dylan Edwards, and um, Jaden Lamar, and then you still have Jabron Payne, you have Jadarian Price coming back from an injury, and then you have Estime and uh, Logan Diggs. It, it would seem to make sense. Notre Dame needs numbers at that position. I think Chris Tyree could be a pretty good slot receiver. So if he's if that's something that he's interested in, I think that that would make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think it could be a possible. Yeah, I mean, some of it will determine if he wants to do that uh, or be determined by if he wants to do that. Um, I mean, and if Notre Dame is insisted on him doing that, maybe he just he decides, well, maybe I want to go play running back somewhere else. But I, I think that I'm, I'm not exactly sure what his primary position will. I, I I would like to see him play out of the backfield more. Um, I think he he does that um, I, 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 maybe like a fifth of his snaps or something like that this season. Um, but I, I think that Notre Dame could – sort of make that his primary role and maybe flip that like for as much as he's in the backfield this year, maybe he's in, in the slot that amount next year, and then maybe in the backfield a little bit less, but I think there are certainly ways to use him in valuable ways. He can add some things to Notre Dame's offense. And it's not like Notre Dame has a long uh, depth chart at the slot wide receiver position. So maybe he would be open to that, but we will see <laughs> what comes of that. With Joe Wilkins gone, they don't have a, a deep, right 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 uh uh, but obviously we weren't expecting joe wilkins to be back next season anyway so next year's depth chart is what we're what we're looking at now next question is from at henry bead with jordan batello and junior tui halamaka getting reps at viper and no obvious successor to isaiah foskey do you think notre dame will be a base 3-4 team in 2023 you know at first i thought where in the world are you coming up with that but i don't think it's as crazy of a question as I did when I first read through it, because you do have all the linebackers coming back basically, except for Bo Bauer, who's not on the team anymore, who's hurt. Uh, And then you're adding three linebackers. You're adding Drake Bowen, Preston uh, Zinner and Jaden Osbury, but you're also adding some pretty good defensive linemen. You have a lot of good defensive linemen, you know, Marcus played 34 and 43 at Cincinnati and Al, um, Al Golden was a 34 guy coming up. I mean, that was where he kind of learned to be a defensive coordinator, but you've got so many good defensive linemen, Jordan Batello, Josh Burnham, Junior Tuahalamaka can all compete for that Viper spot. You have uh, Bubakar Traore coming in. Um you know, and all these great interior defensive linemen, I wouldn't change. And I don't think Notre Dame will. I think they found a structure that would work. And then four schemes in four years, I think that would be a big mistake. Yeah. I mean, to me, to run a 3-4, you need to have a good nose guard. And I don't know that Notre Dame has a 3-4 nose guard on its roster or will next season either. So, um, or let alone multiples of them because they're going to rotate. So, um to me that would that would lead to that not being the base cross isn't cross can be a nose guard in a four three can't be the nose guard in a 34 chris smith is the closest they have to that kind of guy and he's not going to be around next year nor is he necessarily a 
high volume player either. Right. So I, I think we're seeing those guys like Jordan Batello and Junior Tuhalamaka one because they feel like they can make an impact, but also two they want to be able to see if they can rely on those guys next year too. So um, I I just know I if I were Al Golden and Al Washington, I would be begging Justin Adamola to stay and say, hey, do you want to be our number one Viper next year? Because I think that's probably his best position. He's but he, he is playing well at strong side defensive end, but he just has been blocked by Isaiah Foskey and sort of being the number one Viper. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily likely, but that would be um, maybe the coach's <laughs> dream scenario, but uh, they certainly have questions they need to address, but I, I don't know that that would be worth the questions that Viper be worth, like changing your defensive base scheme um, going into next season. They also like Aiden Gobira. I think he's working at the big end, but I mean, he's not, he's got that quickness to play Viper. So I think they've got some guys that are coming up. Right, and then maybe maybe whoever it is, like they just drop them in coverage less, and it's not like Isaiah Foskey does that a ton, but they do do that sometimes. And I don't know that there's probably guys that could run with guys in the same way that that uh, Isaiah Foskey could. Maybe Jordan Patello could run with a a running back out of the backfield or something like that. We saw there was one there was one part play particularly that I remember recently against Syracuse where Isaiah Foskey was just running running down the sideline with his guy. It's like. That shouldn't work that way, but it did because the guy was just not getting open. Isaiah Foskey was easily able to run down the sideline with him. All right. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Could recruits in the 2023 class who passed on Notre Dame or decommitted have their interest rekindled after the weekend? Do you have clarification on the NCAA statement about the transfer portal? I believe there was concern. Transfer players may not be able to enroll in January. Okay, let's start with that one. Tyler, do you know anything different? I hadn't seen anything about that. No, I'm not I was I don't know what Marie is referencing there. I, I there's a they they put in a time where people have to declare when they want when they're right. entering the transfer portal. Um and that's 45 days after the championship selections are made for football. So I believe this year it'll be December 5th or January 19th. Um and then there's a window in this at the end of spring, April 15th through April 30th, but I'm not aware of there being a concern that transfers could enroll in January. Certainly Notre Dame had a few of them just this past season. So I, I don't know what that concern is, is related to. And then will some 2023 guys reconsider? I think Notre Dame is just hoping they can hold on to the guys that they have. And then they're trying to flip a quarterback. Um, you know, there's a, what's the wide receiver from Texas tech, Caleb Smith. Is that his name? Yes. Okay. And and guys like that. But I mean, if you're thinking about Keon Keeley, somebody like that, um, bringing him back into the class, I don't think that's something that, you know, Keon looked at the Clemson game and said, boy, I would have liked to have been storming the field too. Uh, I think he's his priorities changed when the person leading his recruitment changed, which I think is his uncle now. It was his mom and him. And so I, I I don't see him coming back to the class. Recruiting is a weird thing. I mean, Braden Lindsay never felt like that was going to come back after he decommitted, went to Oregon, and kind of badmouthed the Notre Dame coaching staff. So you never say never, but that's not on the radar right now. Yeah, and then privately, the Notre Dame coaching staff was badmouthing Braden Lindsay and then <laughs> and praising him when he came back. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, feelings get hurt and the stuff like that happens in the recruiting process. I, I 
I think Notre Dame isn't doing its due diligence if it doesn't at least reach out to Keon Keely or reach out to Dante Moore or Jackson Arnold or any of those guys that they had traction with previously and say, hey, you sure you want to not get you, you maybe you want to reconsider and give us a chance here on the last month month or so. Sure. Um, so you have to you have to at least look into that, but it's not going to sort of happen when, with a snap of their fingers. That that's something that will sort of develop. It's not going to a kid didn't just see that game and say, you know what. The last three months of what I've been doing, I I, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to go to Notre Dame. So um, I think this this could be the start of Notre Dame maybe getting back into things with some people, especially at those positions like defensive end, Viper defensive end, and quarterback where they just don't have any any answers for right now. All right, next question is from at Carlton underscore Butler. We can talk all day about how a certain silently committed quarterback hurt the 23 recruiting class when he bailed. But what's with the inability to replace him in the class for so long after? It wasn't the day before signing. We can't even get a three-star with a big arm to visit or a project. Well, I mean, do you really want a project? Uh, You know, that's the thing. Notre Dame was aiming high, and they had Jackson Arnold, Christopher Vizina, Dante Moore all interested in the 23 class. You had Justin saying, uh, or Julian saying rather in the 24 class along with CJ Carr. I mean, they were aiming high and they were getting interest. And then they slow played guys like um, Avery Johnson. Uh, and because they were convinced Dante Moore was coming, they put all their eggs in that basket and kind of shooed the other guys away. They made their commitments. And then it's hard to go back to them and say, ah, just kidding. We really like you the best, you know, come come see us. And then, um, you know, I don't think CJ Carr committing as early as he did made it as attractive for a 2023 guy to come, especially if they weren't in CJ Carr's echelon as far as talent. You know, a three-star guy's like, wait a second, Tyler Buckner or Drew Pine is going to be the starter or maybe a portal quarterback and jelly's already there uh, and they have this really good 2024 guy where do i fit in so i could see why it's a hard sell but notre dame act absolutely mishandled that the other thing about quarterbacks i mean it's possible they could get avery johnson to change his mind uh, at the end here but um you know it's about relationships and you're trying to form relationships with guys that you don't even know. And, it, and it's difficult to earn their trust in such a short time. So uh, they handled this probably as poorly as you could. And uh, they're going to have to learn from it and not repeat that in another cycle. Yeah. I mean, quarterback recruiting is baffling to me. I, I, I don't, there are a few of those things that I don't really buy or uh, give Notre Dame like an out in terms of excuses, like Notre, like CJ Carr shouldn't prevent Notre Dame from being able to recruit a 2023 quarterback. You should still be able to get somebody. Um, I think it's, I, it, I'm yeah. saying at that late date, I think earlier on, no, no problem. You know, if, if they, if they had kept being a warm, there's no way he's like, no, CJ Carr is better than me. Right. I think you start recruiting in August it's difficult to get those guys interested at that point. I think the CJ Carr thing that was, that was more of a deterrent was the thought of him possibly reclassifying. I think that had, 
that played way more into like what a 2023 sure, quarterback would consider about Notre Dame than like, well, I don't know if I can beat this kid out when I'm going to be there on campus a year ahead of him. I don't, I don't know that that played a huge role. I, I, they have been kicking the tires on what people would call projects or three-star guys. I mean, UCLA commit Luke Duncan was someone they thought was going to come to campus and he didn't follow through on that. Um, UCLA baseball commit uh, Rock Chalowski was someone that they were working on trying to get to campus and that didn't come through and they've they sort of just failed in every aspect in towards in terms of trying to get a 2023 quarterback so um, it's it's not good Um, Notre Dame sort of seems to be waiting on a Hail Mary I don't know what will end up coming of all of this but it's not it's been poorly handled um, and you can't really sort of argue with the results because the results have been pretty disastrous to this point but obviously the end result is all that matters and if they can fix that in the next month and a half or even if they have to push it into february uh, maybe they can find a solution but the, the 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 options for solutions right now aren't aren't exactly enticing or promising i'm going to debate you on that I, I i think if if notre dame is looking at in the portal for quarterback for 23 what's in it for a 23 three-star guy to come to notre dame what's What's possibly in it? Where where is the path for him to ever play? If so, if you're so, a portal guy now, you so have who, so who's the, Buckner, who's the who's the portal guy that they're getting? A young guy, are you saying, or a guy that's going to come in and start for a year and then go to the NFL? It could be either of those things, but let's say it's a guy that comes in and is going to go to the NFL. You still have Drew Pine. You still have Tyler Buckner. Well, I don't. I don't know. Well, Steve Jelly, and, and one of those guys could leave. Right, if they bring in a portal guy. One of those guys could leave, but you're still going to have Angeli, either Buckner or Pine. You're going to have CJ Carr in the class after it. You have Ron Paulus there. Um, you know there isn't a clear path now. Sometimes, you know, Ian Book the path isn't a- the path isn't clear, but it's not filled with stars. I think that's my that's my point. Is like okay, if they if they feel the but need, if to- you're a, if you're a three star, are you going to get? that fair shake now if it was a five-star kid i mean if it was jackson arnold yeah jackson arnold could play where he wants jackson arnold could possibly start as a freshman but if you're a three-star marginal which is what i thought the question said um then why would why would you think you could overcome and beat those guys well uh Ian Book was given that chance as a marginal three-star quarterback, and the same guy that coached him is still on the coaching staff. So, I think That's that true. you could point to like, "Hey, we don't care what your stars are." Like that. I mean, and they're not—they're not when they recruit a guy. You're like, "Yeah, we think you're crap, but we're gonna—we need a quarterback, so we're gonna bring you in." They're gonna talk the kid up until you tell them you're gonna get a chance. Um, I just don't see like the obvious obstacles that would—that would. That would I think well, it would have more to do with like, I don't know that you can develop me into the quarterback that I need to be. Then it would be like, I can't beat out Tyler Buckner. Or Steve well, that's, that's true. I mean, you're looking at Notre Dame's offense and you're a quarterback. You're like, I don't know. You know, I'm, you know, I'm get, completing nine passes in a game two weeks in a row. Um, you know, that's maybe not the offense that excites them. Now they could certainly sell. And I know that they are They're thought is look at all the wide receivers we've got coming in we're going to be this plus a dynamic offense we're still going to have a great offensive line we're going to be physical we're going to run the ball but we'll be able to be more dynamic in the future because we have all these wide receivers coming in and we have you coming in that that's the selling point but I think again for strangers that you don't have any 
relationship with, I think that's uh, harder to believe than somebody that they had been courting for a year or two, which is what these elite quarterbacks like to have. They like to have that early interest. Notre Dame's already looking at 2025s. Right. But, but that, the Dante Moore thing happened in July. We we're talking, well, that was five months ago now. So they had plenty of time to sort of figure that out between now and then. Now, like if we're saying we're starting from scratch now, which well, they went, they kind of went one at a time, though. Didn't they go to the Baylor kid first? Right. They did, but they, they, it was too late in the but process they, to handle did. it that way. Right. It was too late. And they also put all the eggs in that basket until he said no. Right. And then they were kind of starting from scratch again. Right. They didn't ever really learn about okay let's get several people uh you know involved so it just hasn't been handled well yeah no I, i'm certainly not defending how it's been handled i just don't i don't i don't think it's a, a valid excuse of like what is on the roster is preventing some them from getting someone in the class all right uh last okay. question last question we have is from irish sports fan uh on the insider lounge thoughts on rumors of nd trying to get back in on key Keon key a bit Thoughts on Dante Moore potentially decommitting from, from Oregon to MSU. Absolute shocker if he does. Irish sports fan adds in parentheses. Do you see any possibility that Dante Moore slash Keon Keeley wind up back in the class or even entertaining communication with the Notre Dame staff? I think Keon would listen to the Marcus if he texted and called, and I think he's probably reached out to Keon, but it doesn't seem like there's movement there. I don't think the Dante Moore thing's going to happen unless there's a paycheck involved. Um, you know, I think there's going to have to be some kind of guaranteed money for him to con- reconsider Notre Dame. Yeah, and I I have no idea if he's going to go to MSU. I mean, that's I know Michigan State is, is has put it out there um, because when it comes from the reporters, it's not the reporters usually aren't making it up that they're trying to get Dante Moore. Um, and we'll see if they have any success in that. I, it, seem, it would seem to be like a very strange time for someone to decide to go to Michigan State, given the way that their, their season has has gone. Um, but uh, but who knows? I mean, stranger things have certainly happened in recruiting. But I, I I would say that the odds of either of those guys ending up in Notre Dame's class is very slim at this point. I would give the edge to Keon Keeley in terms of there being a better likelihood of ending up in Notre Dame's class. But I think there's some fence mending that happen, has to happen there. Some, some reconsidering of what those kids are valuing in terms of what they want to do with their college um, decision. And um, there's still time for that to change, but obviously uh, we're getting into the, the final stretch here pretty soon. All right. That's it for today's episode of the inside ND sports podcast. If you don't already You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with someone you know who stormed the field on Saturday. Check us out on YouTube if you're not subscribed to us there already. The Inside Indie Sports channel is home to our Monday Night Live show and place your bets predictions every week. And we'll be back for another podcast next week to recap the Navy game and get ready for Senior Day against Boston College. Until then, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs. 